When the Securities and Exchange Commission charged Army financial advisor Kaz Craffey with defrauding Gold Star families, it highlighted a need to protect military families in their most vulnerable moments. Language in the National Defense Authorization Act for 2024 aims to provide that protection. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr joins me with the details. And Alex, let's start with what happened to those families. So, Tom, they were Gold Star families, which means families who lost a a direct family member who was on active duty in the military. When that happens, there's a a life insurance policy that kicks in. That's usually about $400,000. And then there's a death benefit that's paid by the military, which comes in at $100,000. So these families have just lost a loved one and they have four, five, six hundred thousand dollars $600,000 that needs to be invested to take care of them for the rest of their lives. So the Army recommended to them that they go to the Army financial advisor, in this case, Kaz Craffey, and he would advise them on what to do with their money. He was an Army reservist working as a civilian for the Army. But what they didn't know is that he had outside employment with another firm as an individual investment advisor. And what he ended up doing is taking their money, getting control of the insurance funds, and going out there and doing super risky investments that they never would have authorized. Here's an attorney for who represents the families. Her name is Natalie Kawam. The families were being told that things like, oh, you have to use him, or you know, you can't be trusted with this kind of money. You need to use a financial advisor with this money. Now, a lot of these families are vulnerable. Uh, they don't know the rules of the army or the military. So as far as they knew, they, they trusted the army and believed that this is something that they had to do or that was best for them. So Crafty, maybe his name should have been Crafty, just to reiterate, was an employee of the army and therefore people thought they could trust him, fair to say? Fair to say. And I have to tell you, the first couple of times I read this, I thought it was Crafty because he definitely sounds like a Crafty. He, he made some money on this. He took $1.64 million in commissions and fees from these families. And then he lost another $1.8 million in realized losses and another $1.8 million in unrealized losses. So each family, if, if you figure they roughly had about $400,000, each family lost about half of the money they had through his investments. Again, here's Attorney Kawam. A normal conservative investment in these kind of situations would be that you never lose any money. You know, they just will invest the money and reap the benefits of interest and um, such on it. But in this situation, Kaz was telling them, don't look at your financial statements, don't look at your accounts. And he was actually trading on, doing high-risk trades on their money. Unfortunately, the family's majority lost half of their uh, investment that he had invested for them. Plus, he had a conflict of interest going, too, and that's where the SEC came in? That's right. He had a huge conflict of interest going on that the Army apparently has depended on sort of word of honor from its financial advisors that they won't do this sort of thing. So this has gotten the attention of of a bunch of different groups hoping to solve this problem once and for all. Some lawmakers are looking into it, and the National Military Families Association, who advocates for military families on the Hill, They've been looking into future protections. Here's NMFA Director of Government Relations, Meredith Smith. It highlights the need to ensure that it doesn't ever happen again and that there are protections in place and that, you know, when you're dealing with finances, especially that you have a system to ensure that there's not some other incentive for people to misguide the ones that they're advising. Now, of course, the NDAA, Alexandra, has not passed yet. 
So are there any changes the Army is making in the meantime in the way they hire these these financial consultants? Well, what's going into the NDAA is an, an addendum that would say, if you're a financial advisor and you're going to go work for the Army, you have to have written record of what you're doing, what you plan to do, any disclosures you need to make. So it's no longer sort of word of mouth. There needs to be a record saying you can't have this kind of conflict of interest because there's no way that it's not going to hurt people in the long run. Otherwise, the Army had no mechanism for discovering what this guy was up to. No, it's surprisingly casual that they would sort of authorize these people to to hold people's trust and then not have any written record that they weren't having conflict of interest. And would it be accurate to say the Army is actually maybe working with the committees on getting this language drafted into the NDAA? The Army's working with the committees. The SEC is working with the committees. And the NMFA is also working with the committees to create language that's appropriate for this specific case. Here's Meredith Smith. The legislation that Representative Cheryl's office introduced, we endorsed, and we are excited that it does have bipartisan support. We know that their office is also working with members in the Senate to have a companion piece on the Senate side that would address the need to ensure that financial counselors are, I I believe the language is, free of conflict. And what happens to Caffrey? Is he going to go to jail or do we know what his disposition is? The charges have only been filed, but in addition to the federal charges, Natalie Kuam said that she represents 11 of the families and they've filed civil charges and they're going to try and get the money back. Even if they can't get it back from Caffrey, they might be able to get it back through the insurance from the private firm he was working for when he invested their funds. Right. So any chance of those families being made whole again, at least to get back to zero? I would hope that at least through the insurance, they're going to get some of that money. I don't know how much Caffrey's holding himself, but at least the insurance is going to be able to pay them back. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field 
And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming 
after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbored no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with a correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.